1: proud to announce that the new 1001 Stories Network app is now available at the Apple App Store. This app is free and combines all our 1001 shows. Plus it offers all kinds of conveniences like car mode and playlists. To gain access to all our archives and get special new bonus episodes, we suggest you become a premium member at the link shown here in our show notes or at 1001storiespodcast.com The name of that app again is 1001 Stories Network. Today we're very proud to have Air Force Chief of Staff and four-star General Tony McPeak with us to take us from the war in Vietnam to the current threats in Korea and elsewhere. Are we ready? And what have we learned? Tony flew 269 air combat missions and 98 MISTI missions over Vietnam, was involved in planning the Gulf War, and has been a major force for the U.S. in strategy and combat readiness. He speaks what's on his mind and doesn't pull any punches as you'll find out when you read his new book, Roles and Missions, which is the third in a trilogy of books which include Below the Zone and Hangar Flying. And that's a great place to start as we go back to the 60s to look at where our Air Force was at that time, what we had in the air, why we were in Vietnam, and what we learned. For our younger listeners, I'm hoping you can set the stage for the Vietnam War, explain why we were there, was it a just cause, and what prevented us from winning it. What did we learn from it?
0: Uh, John, the, uh, you know, I just spent five years working with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick on the Vietnam War documentary. I'm, th- that's a 10 episodes, 18 hours of film. And I'm in four of the episodes. I was interviewed for it, and I'm in four of the episodes. And I'm credited as a technical advisor uh, on every uh, episode. So I worked with them for a long time. I think that documentary is very good at explaining, you know, the fundamental questions of why were we there and uh, what happened to us. The short answer to that is we sort of fumbled our way in. Uh, you know, first of all, we tried to help the French win, and when they got defeated, uh, we sort of filled what we thought was a vacuum. and. Uh, there was this ill conceived notion that if Vietnam fell to the communists, it was just the first domino and the others in Southeast Asia would fall, which turned out not to be true because we lost Vietnam. The South was incorporated into the North. And, uh, you know, within another decade or so, the Berlin Wall fell over. The Soviet Union disappeared from history. The Warsaw Pact evaporated. So, if anything, that first domino you know, you'd have to say, led to the exact opposite of what the domino theory uh, predicted, that we would lose worldwide in the struggle against communists. So uh, we went in, I think, under uh, false reasoning, bad rationale. Uh, We lost, and the consequences were anything but those predicted. Uh, We're closer today to Vietnam (laughs) than we have been in a long time. I mean, they're very friendly to us. It's a rigorous, growing uh, economy, and uh, I don't favor the administration there. I mean, it's a dictatorship still, and I don't like that. But uh, the Saigon regime was also a dictatorship and a corrupt one at that from top to bottom, and so, you know, there are worse things that can happen to us than to lose that one.
1: You flew 269 air combat missions and 98 misty missions. Can you explain the difference between the two and what and what those missions accomplished?
0: Well, uh, the most of my missions were ordinary fighter pilot attack missions. You go out and attack some target. We had a, th- those were flown in country, uh, by and large. So uh, although I did fly quite a few out of country sorties in support of. Operations in Laos. The misty uh, oper- uh, sorties were forward air controller sorties. Uh, we went over there and tried to find the targets for uh, attack, and so we didn't carry munitions ourselves, aside from uh, 20 millimeter, which we could and did use for strafing on Laos. But we had marking rockets, 2.75 folding fin, uh, you know, white. Phosphorus, uh, Willie Pete, we called it uh, marking market. So if we found a target, we would call the the, the fighters in, loaded with high explosives, and we'd mark it for them with uh, white phosphorus and uh, and control that attack. So the to find targets, you had to get down in Laos and look under trees, and of course that meant a lot more vulnerability. Only time I was ever hit. By ground fire in Southeast Asia, I was hit by a nine-millimeter, you know, <laughs> somebody with a handgun. Yep. I mean, pistols were. Uh, so uh, that was a little more dangerous, and we limited those missions over there to uh, 100 sorties. I never did get 100. I got to 98 because uh, I was actually relieved. as my. I was a commander of that squadron, and we moved from Phuket down to Tuiwa. And the new guy wanted his own uh, you know guy in charge of that uh, uh, squadron. so he relieved me you know two sorties early, which I'm still irritated about <laughs> and uh, kicked me upstairs and put him to work directly for him. I became the, the chief of his Danny valve, what we call standardization evaluation, evaluation group, reporting directly to the guy who fired me and in charge of of giving all the rest of the air crews their annual, uh, you know, check rides and certifying that they were, uh, you know, full up round. So uh, he didn't really fire me. He sort of hired me to come up and be in charge of, uh, you know, the wing, the whole wing. But I always considered the firing, and I wanted to firefly those last two missions, but I never got to never got to do it.
1: Now those those Misty missions were daylight missions, right?
0: Yeah. We had no capability to get down on the trail at night and look back in the trees and try to find truck parks and, you know, warehouses and storage areas and so forth, which is what we were looking for.
1: And that was the Ho Chi Minh? Now we do. That was the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Ho Chi Minh. That's
0: yeah. correct. That was the trail. And, uh, and, of course, it was manned, by and large, by uh, North Vietnam regular troops rather than, uh, you know, Pathet Lao or in-country, so often you went against uh, kind of VC defenses or Viet Cong defenses. But these these guys were, were North Vietnamese regular troops and better equipped, better trained, uh, tougher guys, uh, you know, in general.
1: In in the first book you wrote of what is called, what some people call the trilogy, the book called Hangar Flying, what, would the, yeah. what, what were the toughest sections of that book for you to write, or maybe the toughest memories that you had?
0: Well, it was clear to me from kind of the moment I landed in Vietnam that we were in a losing fight. Uh, The Saigon government was a Catholic regime in a largely Buddhist country, a uh, regime of outsiders, and most of the guys were uh, North Vietnamese, from Hanoi, you know, that were displaced south when. Ho Chi came to power in the north, and uh, really, really corrupt. It was sort of a family operation, uh, but it extended down into their armed forces so that all the top-tier generals were on the take. You know, the year I was there, the, the official desertion rate from South Vietnamese uh, forces was almost 400 people a month. Right you know, a battalion a month. They were losing to just desertion. And, of course, none of those names ever came off the payroll because the division commander and the corps commanders and so forth kept, you know, paying these people who were gone, and that money went right in their pocket. So, you know, the combination, and in addition, of course, the North had a lot going for it. They were purely nationalist people. They weren't fighting with the outside help of, uh, you know, us uh, or any what might be regarded as imperial power. So here's Vietnam that had fought against uh, the Chinese, they'd fought against the, the French, they'd fought against the Japanese in World War II, they fought against the French when they came back. Now they're fighting against us. So. Their line was, you know, we're fighting to get rid of these foreign powers, and take control of our own country. That's a pretty good argument. And I mean, we did that in the revolution. And then they said they were fighting to reunify their own country. And of course, we could understand that too. We did that in the Civil War. So the South, it seemed to me, had very poor rationale for us to support them, and the North. I had pretty good rationale. now, so uh, you know. It, I thought we were on backing a losing cause from the beginning, but I was a professional. I mean, I wasn't a draftee, you know, some 18-year-old kid. I was a major in my early 30s, a unit commander eventually when I got command of the Misties, and I wasn't there because I was angry with anybody. I was there because the president said go fight these guys, and you know, I'm a hired gun, in the sense, a sense a, a lifer, signed up, professional military guy. So I went, did the best I could, but it was obvious to me that, in the long run, we could only prop up the Saigon regime for so long, and eventually, you know, their own sins would uh, come to roost. And that's exactly what happened by the early uh, 70s. Uh, it was uh, just a, you know, a calamity. We eventually did withdraw withdraw, under terms that sealed uh, Saigon's fate, you know, I mean, under the terms of withdrawal, we left behind a couple hundred thousand NVA troops in South Vietnam. We had always wanted to negotiate to get them out, and the Saigon government, you know, that was a make-or-break thing for them, the removal of these uh, foreign troops. But uh, at the end of the day, we wanted our POWs back, and uh, we knew we were you know, uh, giving up Saigon, but we, that's what we negotiated. That's what Kissinger eventually signed up to. And so at that point from then on until 1975, it was just a matter of time.
1: What countries were involved in creating unrest in the U.S.? Back then, social media was nowhere near what it is today. In fact, it was not existent. We, we didn't have Internet back in those days. Who was I, working against us, and how much did the turmoil that was created in Washington and on college campuses affect the outcome of the war?
0: Well, I, effect, I think it affected it a lot, but I don't believe it was a foreign effort. I mean, the, the opposition to the war was domestic. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, I know some of these guys that uh, threw their medals over the uh, fence. Uh, you know, John Kerry led the opposition. He wasn't speaking on behalf of anybody except himself. So good patriotic Americans uh, just thought we were doing the wrong thing, and uh, they led the opposition, and that opposition was on college campuses and everywhere in this in this country. And eventually, I think it was crucial. I mean, when Walter Cronkite came back from a visit to Vietnam and announced on CBS Evening News that uh, we were backing a losing cause, we were in a quagmire, I think was his uh, direct words. Americans trusted Walter Cronkite more than they did Richard Nixon. And so, uh, the, Cronkite wasn't speaking on behalf of Red China, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was, a, this was a good guy. And so he finally came to a reluctant conclusion that, that this was nonsense and that we, the best course of action was us to just finish up and, and, and leave. But no doubt that public opposition was the, was the center of gravity. I mean, we, couldn't o- we could only operate for any democracy only operate so long in a combat, uh, overseas combat, without the support of its own people. And gradually, it was clear that the people didn't support us. I mean, Lyndon Johnson would certainly have loved to run for another term, but he sensed, and rightly so, that there was too much opposition to the Vietnam War and his role in it. And so he didn't seek renomination. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, that public opposition in our country, which was right, I think. I mean, they they, had a, they assessed the situation correctly, and no doubt it was responsible for our ultimate for our, ultimately our withdrawal. Now, so in a sense, you know, we never lost a military battle in Vietnam, but we lost the war because we got in a position where we couldn't get widespread public support for what we were doing there
1: discover why critics are calling kingdom
0: of the planet of the apes the best film of the franchise
1: what a wonderful day
0: it's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible i need to go hang on it is our time Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: We're approaching the anniversary of the Tet Offensive. What was the Tet Offensive?
0: Well, Tet was a all-out full-court press by the North and by the Viet Cong guerrillas in the South. To topple the Saigon government, and by the way, to give us a bloody nose in the process. Uh, they, uh, uh, I mean, it was. First of all, it's interesting to note, and and Ken Burns and Lynn Novick make this point in their documentary that Ho Chi Minh was surprised by the Tet offensive. By the time, early 1968. He had been essentially elbowed aside by others in the Politburo in Hanoi, and so when they woke him up and said, "Hey, we've launched a you know attack all across South Vietnam on every major city, including Saigon," he was very surprised. And of course, Marshal Zapp, uh, their their senior military guy, was also surprised. He was in Eastern Europe, in a hospital getting a medical treatment. So, but. So that's one interesting aspect of this: that this this uh, offensive was launched without the uh, approval or even the knowledge of the senior guy, the guy we thought was in charge. You know, Ho Chi Minh. Now the result was a calamity for the Viet Cong. They never recovered from it. I mean, they were killed in very large numbers. They came out in the open to fight for the first time in Vietnam, and and essentially opened themselves up to uh, air attack, and uh, they were just uh,
1: decimated.
0: I mean, uh, like I say, the V.C. was never again the force that they were before TET. And, by the way, when Saigon fell in 75, it wasn't to a bunch of pajama-clad, you know, guerrillas. It was to main force NVA units who rolled into Saigon with tanks. And surface air in SAM missiles and so forth. was So, I mean, the, the VC itself was never a major uh, military uh, factor after the Tet Offensive. From then on, the fighting that was done that, that amounted to anything was done by main uh, force, uh, you know, mainline uh, North Vietnamese Army units. So it was a military catastrophe for the Viet Cong. But it was a strategic victory for the North, because up until uh, January of 68, uh, Westmoreland and the president and everybody was saying, well, we can see, you know, the beginning of the end here. We're winning. The body counts are going up, blah, blah, blah. And then Tet exploded in front of everybody, and the American people saw, well, <laughs> If this is what winning looks like, uh, you know, let's not hang around here and wait till we lose. So I think that it was a key to uh, undermining U.S. public support for what was going on over there. Even a military disaster as it was, it was a strategic victory and a turning point in the war.
1: What were you flying in Vietnam and how, how have our capabilities changed over the years?
0: Well I was flying F100s which was not the uh leading kind of fighter because by then we already knew the F100 needed to be replaced and we eventually did replace it with uh, an Air Force version of the Phantom the F4 but it was still you know a supersonic jet aircraft so it was not a, a old uh, you know prop driven uh, World War 2 kind of <laughs> airplane uh what we learned in Vietnam applied to the F four and the F one hundred and five and the F one hundred. The main uh, fighters, uh, frontline fighters, we used there. Well, I would say we learned three main lessons there. They're all technical. One is uh, we we have to hit what we're aiming at. You know, our average miss distance for all bombs dropped in uh, Vietnam was on the order of a hundred meters, so uh, three hundred feet. Now. That's not bad because if you drop a you know a two thousand pound bomb three hundred feet from somebody, it's going to their eardrums are going to ache for a while. But if the target is a bridge, you can't stand a hundred foot miss, hundred three hundred foot miss, hundred meter miss. Or if it's a tank or a truck, you know these vehicles are made for a, a heavy duty use, so they're not going to be knocked out by a hundred meter miss. So what we learned. Uh, our first lesson was we have to hit what we're aiming at. And that meant we had to go put a full-court press on precision-guided munitions, which we did. And by the time of Desert Storm, you saw, we were using munitions that didn't just hit the truck. They hit the hood ornament, okay? Huh. So that's what we need to do. Two, we needed to have a uh, capability to operate at night. We had essentially no capability at night, so the other side owned the night and they drove down the <laughs> Ho Chi Minh Trail at night and they operated at night whenever they could. After the war, we gen- after Vietnam, we generated a full-up capability to operate at night. And now we, you know, Desert Storm kicked off at like 2.30 in the morning. That, that, you know, their time, Baghdad time. We prefer to fight at night. Actually, anybody who fights us in the daytime is going to get killed also, but at night, our advantage over everybody is quite wide. So that was, again, something we learned in Vietnam and, and we fixed. And the third thing we learned is we don't like to go... I mean, we bloomed very big on enemy radars. So whenever we went into the north, it was no surprise to anybody. I mean, and they were able to... Be quite effective with their ground-based defenses, both uh, AAA and surface-to-air missiles, because we, you know, we just looked very big in, in both their acquisition radars and in their fire-control radars. So we invented stealth. We we now have the capability to defeat enemy radars, and so those three things: precision, stealth and a night capability were technical lessons that we learned from Vietnam, and everybody, Vietnam lasted long enough that we all learned these lessons. When we came back, we fixed them. Now, there were other lessons learned, but not so much by the Air Force. They were kind of cultural lessons. You know, we can't have NCOs killing their officers or soldiers killing NCOs. We can't have dope, you know, smoking in the front lines and so forth. We we needed to correct the uh, you know culture in some ways, and I think the army came back and went to work on that. I mean, guys like Colin Powell and Norm Schwarzkopf reinvented the army, and uh, the army is much better today culturally than it was the when it was the uh, kind of conscription-based you know draft-based force that we uh, fought Vietnam with. And There were some technical lessons that, are, that I think the Army also learned, but by and large, we we didn't have to—culturally, the Air Force was in pretty good shape. We needed to pay attention to technical shortcomings, and I can go into why they existed. I mean, basically, the Air Force was a strategic air command, you know, massive retaliation force, and it was built on bombers and nuclear weapons. and. Uh, we, we neglected uh, in the years after Korea we neglected the kind of changes that we needed to make technically because the money went to uh, you know to retaliatory uh, forces and mm-hmm. I can't argue that that was a bad thing we eventually won the cold War which was really uh, very important and I think the strategic forces played a lead role there but the tactical force was starved and didn't put the, make the investments they needed in uh, technology to to uh, ready us for conventional warfare as we then ran into in Vietnam.
1: Uh, you contributed to the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. What do you? What did you take home from that? Is uh, and, and what and how do you recommend it?
0: Well, I think it's a, a, a wonderful piece of work. Uh, you know, and and I think that because you know, especially with the younger generation the that doesn't read as much printed page as much and, and relies on video. I think that 18 hours documentary will be, become sort of the, the accepted version of what happened to us in Vietnam. And so it ha- and so I'm very glad to have been a part of it. He interviewed a couple hundred people. Uh, 88 are, of them are in the documentary. I feel lucky that I was one of them. So our stories will come through as part of explaining, you know, what happened to us there and and so forth. I spent five years working on it because uh, not mm. just I mean I only was interviewed one time for a couple of hours, but uh, then they kind of brought me into the family that produced that uh, fil- that film and and uh, so I worked for him for a long work with them for a long time, got to know him. Uh, I think they're very bright people. Uh, Ken, of course, and Lynn Novick is co-director. And I'm proud of the part I I played there. I think that uh, people who invest 18 hours in that documentary will have their time repaid uh, over and over again with an understanding of what really happened then.
1: There's been a lot of movies made about Vietnam by people with different viewpoints. To the younger generations, if they were going to watch two movies that covered the Vietnam War, which ones would you recommend?
0: Deer Hunter and uh, Apocalypse Now. But they're not the only ones. I thought Full Metal Jacket is great, Platoon is great, and, by the way, watch Ken Burns and Lynn Novak's, Novak's documentary Mm-hmm. about the Vietnam War. So I, I frankly would put it at the top of the list. But okay. the popular movies I love most are uh, Deer Hunter and uh, Apocalypse Now. And neither one of them is accurate, you know? Mm-hmm. They're full of uh, of artistic license. But uh, like a novel, they can capture the sense of what went on then. Uh even though they're not true histories. So, yeah, take a look.
1: In your second book of the trilogy, called Below the Zone, what do you cover in that story, and what will the reader take home from that? Well,
0: it's uh, about peacetime. You know, from the end of uh, Vietnam until uh, I became chief of staff four months before Desert Storm, a long period of peace uh, and in that period we won the Cold War I mean uh, it's sort of my take on what being a military professional was like in the years between 1970 and 1990 a 20 year period which included the fall finally of the Berlin Wall the uh, uh destruction, if you could call it that, of the Warsaw Pact, the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, and the uh, disappearance of the Soviet Union. So these are earth-shaking events. I was involved in them, like every other military professional during that 20-year period. We can claim that we defeated the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies. And that's as important a military victory as this country's ever had, and we did it without firing a shot. In many ways, you could say, because the you know the 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 system we put in place to meet their system uh, beat their system, and so we saw the what Fukuyama called the the end of history. You know, the triumph of democracy of liberal democracy the triumph of market-based economics. It turns out it wasn't the end of history because of uh, what happened afterwards, and some of that being uh, mistakes that we made uh, following uh, uh, our victory in the Cold War. But that's what Volume Two is about, is what it was like to be a military man uh, moving up through the ranks. In those uh, peacetime years where, where I was involved in leadership and administration of, uh, of small, uh, medium-sized, and large units, but before I became chief of staff.
1: For somebody moving up through the ranks, as you describe your leadership role and your challenges that you had, and I, know it's tough to, <laughs> I know it's tough to encapsulize uh, an entire novel, and you have a lot to offer. But just short advice, if you can short, what, would you, what short advice would you give to someone that's moving up through the ranks as he starts to accept new responsibilities and roles?
0: Well, I think two things are required at small unit level. I mean, up to about, say, squadron size or a company size. The first one is you have to know your business, top to bottom. And the second one is people have to trust you. People around you are close enough to you in a small unit. They can make an assessment whether you're trustworthy or not. So if you can do these two things, if you really know your business, you know, top to bottom, and if people trust you, you'll be a successful leader at small unit level. As you get more and more senior, you get involved in medium-sized and large units, and that's not enough at that point. And I don't want to go into all that's required. I, I think you still need to know what you're doing. You will need to be trustworthy. But the point is the units you're in charge of are big enough now. Nobody can see, people don't see a close-up every day, and therefore they can't judge whether you know what you're doing or whether you're trustworthy or not on a day-to-day basis like they can in a small unit. So what's what's necessary then is something more, and as I say, I don't want to go into great detail, but I'm more and more impressed by the fact that people have to take responsibility for what happens in their organization, even if it's not their direct responsibility. And so, you know, somebody screws up, and it happens all the time in your unit. You don't come out and say, Corporal Jones really blew it. Mm-hmm. You came out and say, I blew it. And then you fix it, you know, behind the scenes. But it's your fault.
1: Whatever happens
0: in you, you good or bad, and you have to accept that. And, the, and it's especially important that you admit it if a mistake was, was made by you or somebody else. You know, taking responsibility for mistakes now, take a take a look at what happens in Washington today, and try to find me somebody who's taken responsibility for mistakes that are being made, and we can see it right in front of our eyes. But who's responsible? That's pretty hard to find. Certainly, you know, everybody's willing to step forward if the stock market goes up. So I think, a, you have to take responsibility, especially when you make mistakes. Now. I made a lot of mistakes when I was wearing a uniform, and I wasn't proud of them, but I sure as hell took credit for them, including, by the way, in in a time when I was chief of staff. Read volume three, you will see. You know, I'm quite open about it. You cannot make the number of decisions about uh, changes, and I changed the Air Force as much as. Anybody, I think. You
1: changed the uh, uniform at at Code at one time, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, I did. And you're still trying to survive that one. I'm still catching hell about that.
0: (laughs) So, uh, when you make, but but I admitted it when I made mistakes. And and I took responsibility for it. And I'm very proud of the way the Air Force uh, performed under my leadership and since. By the way, we've been in more or less continuous combat since Desert Storm, 25 years or something like that. I mean, immediately after Desert Storm, we put in no-fly zones in the north and in the south of that country. Uh, the combat has continued in uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq. We had uh, Somalia, you know, Mogadishu, with uh, you know, Blackhawks down there. We had combat Balkans. Uh, So, uh, we've been, somebody's been shooting at the Air Force more or less continuously for the last 25 years. We haven't really had much time off. And you probably know this, John, but we have lost a total of six aircraft Mm -hmm. in combat during that period. About an aircraft every four years. That's amazing. And, by the way, one of them shot down was... uh, piloted by our present chief of staff, Dave Goldfein. He was shot down in, I think, 1999 in Bosnia, hmm. in an F-16. We got him back. We have gotten back every single aircrew in those six aircraft that were shot down. You haven't seen any of our POWs, you know, on television, or anybody walking around with their hands up, raised in the air. We got back every single guy. So it's amazing to me that this isn't front-page news in every newspaper in the United States, that, that in continuous combat, we've, we've lost an airplane every four years, and we got everybody back.
1: That's a fantastic record.
0: It is, and, it, and I am not responsible for it. But the Air Force I left when I left office is the Air Force that did that. I made a lot of mistakes, and I took credit for them, And I did some things that I think uh, produced the Air Force, that is, has uh, this record of accomplishment that, as I say, is absolutely astonishing,
1: eye-opening. Agreed. Who are our biggest competitors in the air today? Who do we have to look out for? Well,
0: most of the Air Forces that we have to look out for are on our side. Uh, Israel is a very good, uh, you know, small air force. Uh, the RAF's vanishing in front of our very eyes. It's a major, major tragedy. But whatever's left of it is pretty good. And so it's, it's true of the French, true of the Luftwaffe, and so forth.
1: What's causing the RAF? on the? What's putting them on a downhill slide?
0: The budget. They are... Uh, shadow of their former self because they've just been whacked down by budget pressure in the UK. It's true also of, of some of our other NATO allies, but especially I regret the, the fact that the RAF is now down to so, so few combat squadrons. Uh, so the air forces we have to worry about are Russia and China. The Japanese Air Force is pretty good. South Korean air force is pretty good. North Korea doesn't have an air force worth talking about, but they've got, you know, it's, they are a huge threat to American cities, either right now or will be in very short time. I'm I'm worried about that. I think uh, it's the biggest uh, national security problem that faces us right now. Uh, but it's not their air force. It's uh, you know it's the rocket force. That's the Danger here. Mm-hmm. So among air forces, it's it's Russia and China. Uh, Russia uh, is a is a b- very bothersome because they're operating in airspace in which we're operating right now in Syria and and uh, Iraq to some to some extent. So, but they're being coordinated. I mean, the, the two air forces are cooperating there and so far there hasn't been uh, any any mischief although just recently we apparently have attacked uh, ground units that had russian advisors attached and so that's you know a uh, terribly dangerous situation there we better be very careful uh, and in fact they have better be very careful i mean the the, the russian air force has done some irresponsible things there, and they face uh, or could face uh, dramatic consequences. Already, they've had one of their aircraft shot down by the Turks. So I think they better be very careful. But but by and large, there's an effort underway to coordinate with them and keep the keep the combat forces from confrontation there. What our policy line is. Mm-hmm that's different. And you know, it's a very dangerous situation. Others ought to be able to read our intentions very clearly and understand exactly what it is that we're up to. And when they don't, that creates uncertainty. And I think that's, uh, that's a very dangerous position to be in. So uh, there's no shortage of communication. But uh, it has to, it should be a uniform message from the top to bottom that, and it isn't right now. So, uh, the, the problem is not that we don't know how to communicate. The problem is we don't know, we don't have a unified, sensible, thought through coordinated, uh, policy line to pedal at every, le- at every level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Now, let's take the present problem in Korea. I mean, we've got a crazy man in North Korea who says he's got a red button on his desk that can threaten uh, destruction of American cities. That's uh, bad enough. But now we've got a president who goes back and says, well, my button's bigger than yours, you know, and calls him Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. This, is not, this is not the way, uh, this, is, this is not calculated to improve the security and safety of America, mm-hmm. in my judgment. I am signed up to it. You know, I believe in defending the people and the institutions, uh, and the property of American citizens. So, uh, for me, this is not a trivial issue. Right. We, We simply, and so, I regard the development of a capability in the North, North Korea, to destroy Chicago, or even perhaps Washington, or New York City, certainly uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I regard this as an ominous development mm-hmm. that has to be changed. I mean, this country possesses armed forces for the purpose of eliminating threats like this. Mm-hmm. And this, this particular threat is the best case I've ever seen in favor of preemptive attack. Mm-hmm. We cannot allow this. Uh, crazy person in Pyongyang to be able to evaporate Chicago or Denver whenever he decides he wants to.
1: Do you think he has that capability right now, or do you think he's just saying he has it? I'm not sure. We we
0: we know he. I mean, we know he has nuclear weapons because he's exploded them. Right. Right. He's tested them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We know he has rockets that go some some distance, and that distance appears to perhaps uh, extend to Chicago, and if he can't get to New York City and Washington just yet, it appears that it's only a question of time. What we don't know is whether he can package the munitions and put them on rockets for this kind of range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But I take at face value the fact that he either has that now or he will have it soon. I, I think there's a fuse burning on this problem. Mm-hmm. We have a limited time to take these capabilities away from him. And so I would, I would set a date certain. Now, by the way, I don't want to use nuclear weapons against North Vietnam, but I don't think we have to. I think we can solve this problem with conventional munitions. And I don't want to, to get involved with a war of any kind, conventional or nuclear, before we exhaust every other capability. You know, if if we can negotiate with the guy, great. And there are things we, you know, that he wants. He wants diplomatic recognition. He wants to end the, the Korean War. We never have. We, we're still under an armistice there. Mm-hmm. He wants to reduce, you know, or eliminate the economic sanctions we've put on him. So there's lots of other they have those things and other things that we could put on the table here.
1: And yet he's still taking hostages. And- well,
0: I'm not saying the guy's sane. Yeah. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm saying if we can negotiate with him, we have some carrots that we could put on the table here. It's not all stick. If the Chinese can help us mm-hmm. by all means, let's get them involved. I mean, Beijing is threatened more than Washington. Mm -hmm. I can't understand why the Chinese would ever want North Korea to have nuclear munitions and the (laughs) ability to deliver them at ranges, certainly including Beijing. Mm -hmm. The Russians, you know, Vladivostok is a very large Russian city, you know, not very far from North Korea. So let's get them involved. So I would favor using every other tool in our toolbox before, we engage in a conventional attack. But I I think we have used most of these tools, and I'm not optimistic that any of them will work. And so my own private conviction is we have to intervene. I would want to do it with conventional munitions, and that will be a tough, dirty war. A lot of people will be killed. A lot of wealth will be burned up. The accident of the geography You know, Seoul being within artillery range of the of the guns, uh, buried on on the reverse slope of the hills north of the DMZ. That's not very nice, but that's the hand we have to play. Mm -hmm. And and I would favor, you know, playing it uh, sometime in the next uh, six eight months. I I don't think we can wait another year before we uh, help. Uh, North Korea dismantle their nuclear capabilities, and impose a international inspection regime. That means they won't get them again soon. By the way, I'm pretty optimistic that we that we could do something that uh, obviously is going to be hurt 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 the, the South, and there'll be some losses there. But, but I don't think it needs to be Stalingrad or anything like. You know, we've rebuilt Seoul a couple times. <laughs> mm-hmm. We can do it again if we need to.
1: If we attack North Korea, is that going to bring China into the war?
0: Uh, I have no idea. You know, we, we, they came in in the 50s because MacArthur insisted on going all the way to the Yalu. Had we announced that, you know, we're going to stop operations south of the Yalu, I'm not sure... That the uh, Chinese would have come in, but they couldn't stand to have American troops on their direct border. They needed some kind of buffer, so they they intervened to uh, pr- protect, uh, you know, their uh, a buffer state between them and, and uh, us. So, but it's impossible to say. I think I think if we handle ourselves well, and i by the way, I'm talking about diplomatically here. If we handle ourselves well, we can reduce the backlash. I think people will understand that we cannot have nuclear munitions in the hands of a guy who has threatened to evaporate major U.S. cities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why should we? Uh, and, uh, and if we announce, look, we're, we're going to give this problem six months or so, and if the North doesn't begin to dismantle its capability under international law, inspection, we will intervene. Tell everybody that. And uh, there will be some people who will take pro forma uh, objections to it. But I doubt if there will be anybody in the world who doesn't understand why we're doing this.
1: (laughs) I haven't read all three books through yet, but I have read portions. And one portion I enjoyed was the story of how you met Barbara Bush, could you take our listeners? <laughs> could you take okay. our listeners through that uh, story? Well, uh, in the run up to uh, Desert Storm,
0: I went over to uh, Saudi Arabia and climbed an F-15. I was still current in the F-15, and I flew seven missions in a single seat F-15, including one of them, which was a rehearsal mission for Day One attack. I was really, really impressed, I mean, our guys uh, were ready to go and, and so when I got back to Washington, this was in early January, somehow the White House found out that I had been over there flying with our guys, doing an on-the-ground assessment you know, of, of were we ready or not. I think Colin Powell told the president, frankly, I, I don't know that, but I think so. So uh, George H.W. Bush invited me over to lunch in the private quarters upstairs, and uh, at that lunch was Dick Cheney, uh, Brent Scrocroft, the president, and me. So it was just lunch for four people. And the question was, hey, McPeak, you just got back, you know, you took an assessment, are we ready to go or not? And at the time, there was some talk about further delay, you know, this was in January, I think we'd already delayed once. Uh, but uh, Colin Powell was not anxious to uh, kick off the effort and wanted, uh, you know, further diplomacy, further economic sanctions. Powell was a, a, a dove. You know, he's, he has this reputation for the decisiveness theory, you know, the Powell doctrine. And, uh, uh, and he's a great guy. I like Colin Powell. He's a man's man. Very had a great sense of humor, but I thought we had grunted and groaned long enough, you know, for six months for crying out loud with Desert Shield. We were ready, you know, our guys have been doing push-ups for six months, wind sprints, time to go. So I uh, told the president that I thought, you know, yeah, let's go. And uh, he was nice enough to say, don't worry about it, which led me to believe he was signed up to a mid-January kickoff for Desert uh, Storm. Anyway, at the end of lunch, he invited me to to meet Barbara Bush, which, who, who I never had met. And he took me, and she had fallen down up at, uh, she, she'd been up at uh, Camp David, fallen down. And she hadn't broken her leg, but had hurt it, and it was in a cast. So he says, come on, I'll introduce you to Barbara, so went upstairs. Here she is in bed, the first lady of the United States. She's wearing her pajamas with her her, uh, legs sticking out uh, from underneath the covers in a cast. And I met Barbara Bush, the first lady of the United States, in their bedroom, you know, with her wearing her pajamas. I thought to myself, (laughs) nobody is ever going to believe this story. (laughs) But that's how I met Barbara Bush. She's a wonderful lady. I really... Came to know her, you know, not real well, but pretty well, and I liked her a lot. I Liked uh, the senior Bush quite a bit. He was uh, another good guy. So, uh, but anyway, that's the way I met, and I and I still to this day. And now I put the story in in my book, Roles and Missions, so that people will now uh, well, maybe believe it, because <laughs> it's in print. But up until that. Appeared uh, in print. I'm sure nobody, everybody would think I was telling tall tales.
1: <laughs> and that brings me to your your third and most recent book of the trilogy, Roles and Missions. What are the what are right. the take homes from that book? What were the What were the challenges to writing it, and what uh, what ideas and concepts did you most want to move forward with that?
0: Well, I. Uh... First of all, I talk about Desert Storm because it occurred on my shift, and what were the lessons learned? Then I plunged in after that to reorganizing the Air Force, uh, and I did from top to bottom, uh, and I did some good things and I made some mistakes. But I used the themes of what are the functions of the, you know, the Title X functions of the armed forces. They are to organize, train, and equip units to be provided to operating commanders in theaters of operation. So I have a chapter on organize, I have a chapter on train, I have a chapter on equip. Those are the three things that I really pressed hard on, beginning with organization in 1991. But there were some issues that came along, Mogadishu and our experience in Somalia, which was awful. and Mostly our fault we got 20 guys or so killed there mm-hmm. and uh, because of clumsiness on our part in my opinion. and Bosnia came along and the fact that we uh, NATO tried to do something there and were by and large ineffective during my time. and I thought we could be effective and I made the argument for intervention on the air side to prevent such things as... Srebrenica, where at least uh, you know ten thousand Muslim men and boys were rounded up and killed by uh, Serbians, and uh, in a you know ethnic cleansing that was the worst since the end of World War Two. And so there were other issues that came along, and, uh, and where I argued uh, for action that, by and large, uh, was not taken opposed by and large, really, by Colin Powell and the uh, vice chairman, Dave Dave Jeremiah, and the other, uh, you know, the other service chiefs. So I was kind of a loner, an outsider on some of these issues, and uh, that story is told, all of it, in in roles and missions.
1: What was the biggest issue that, that positioned you as an outsider?
0: Well. Uh, First, I argued in in Desert Storm that we should have an Air Force uh, deputy to Schwarzkopf. Uh, Colin wouldn't listen to it. I mean, it was supposed to be a joint operation, but he he argued for and got Cal Waller, an Army three-star, appointed as Schwarzkopf's deputy in a repeat of mistakes made in Vietnam, where Westmoreland, and later Abrams, always appointed an army uh, guy as a deputy, and even in Korea where MacArthur uh, appointed army uh, uh, deputies. Only Eisenhower ever got it right. I mean, going into D-Day, he had uh, Air Marshal Portal, uh, an airman from the RAF, as his uh, deputy. Uh, so uh, I argued for and and got told to sit down and shut up. That we need, if we're going to fight a joint war, we ought to have a truly joint you know, headquarters with with true joint representation at this in the senior ranks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's the first time and only time really that I ever saw colon get angry at somebody, and I'd only been a you know a service chief for a couple months, so. Uh, part of it was, uh, I, I, you know, I, I should have observed a period of freshman silence,
1: <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> sit down and shut up. But I knew, and I think so did everybody else, that uh, Desert Storm was going to be mostly an air operation; that air power would be decisive, and I felt we should have an airman, you know, at the senior ranks inside the Joint Headquarters. Yeah. And but he, but Powell got. Upsetted at me because, I, you know, I committed truth on this issue and said, hey, let's not go for phony jointness here. Let's have actual jointness. And, of course, Powell had this reputation that he burnished uh, diligently of being above the Army, you know, not playing the old Army game. He was a purple suitor, you know, and it was, to some degree, uh, a phony uh, image and I called him on it and got got uh, and Powell got angry. Mm-hmm. Later, when I thought that we could intervene on the air side in uh, the Balkans, uh, <laughs> I was told how that you know, uh, and not directly because Paul Powell did this in in, uh, in in Washington. He was very effective as an insider. You know, in Washington, but uh, I was the uh, the the uh, the line was for air force for a long time. Air power advocates have overpromised and underdelivered, huh. and here is yet again another case where McPeak is saying that they can take out some of these gun positions, which were right around uh, downtown Sarajevo, shelling you know the Muslims. He, could, he says he can take out these gun positions, but he does. You know, he's going to overpromise and underdeliver once again, and we'll have to go in there on the ground and take them out. So this kind of uh, uh, argument was used and when I, when my point was: we can, at very minimal risk, you know, we're, they, these guys aren't going to shoot us down. We can. So it takes uh, you know more than one sortie to take out an artillery position. Let's send in six sorties. They're not mm-hmm. going to shoot us down. It's safe enough to do. Uh, but uh, Powell was bringing people into his office from around town, including, you know, congressmen and senators, and saying, show me the pictures, and saying, find the gun position in this picture, mm-hmm. the camouflaged gun position. Uh, uh, anyway, that, that's yeah. sort of where I uh, got myself crossways. And then after Mogadishu, I came back and said, hey, the other side is organized better than we are. You know, we've got this two-headed monster in Somalia and neither head is talking to each other. We had the straight leg, you know, army, the 10th Mountain Division, and we had the special operation forces in there. I mean, go see the movie Black Hawk Down,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where you find that the army wasn't really talking to each other, you yeah. know, and, and and we lost some very heroic people in there because the left hand didn't know what the hell a white right hand was doing. Yep. yep. Now, by the time I got over and took a look at it and came back and reported to Powell, it was too late. We were pulling out, but we really got a egg on our face because... The other side, the Skinnies, <laughs> you know—in the film, they call them the Skinnies, These guys with uh, RPGs and so forth uh, uh, were better organized than we were. I mean, and they, none of them had gone to the National War College. <clears throat> so uh, anyway, didn't
1: like that, that me, I didn't
0: like that. Me, didn't like that criticism. And, but it was too late. It didn't didn't make any difference. Afghanistan and in Syria.
1: On the ground but, in Baghdad when, when Hussein surrendered, why didn't we impose martial law at that point? Where was the organization on the ground with regard to winning the war? Well,
0: remember, we sent a civilian in to be, I mean, uh, Rumsfeld sent a civilian in. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, it was a retired Army three-star, I forget his name, good guy. And then the disaster after that, though, was a uh, uh, former diplomat, army guy.
1: He's the one who
0: uh, said, "If you've ever worked, been in the Bath political party, you're out of a job." So all the guys that were running power plants and running the school system, and I mean people who remember the Bath Party, not because we were political, but because they joined the party to get to have success in their civilian job. It was a credential. Mm -hmm. All of them were thrown out. So eventually, none of the power plants worked, the school system failed, and so forth. Then he said, you know, he threw out all the officers that were ex-Iraq army, you know, just because they were ex-Iraq army. So Mm -hmm. you had all these army officers hit the sidewalk, unemployed, no money in their pocket, I mean, it was a series of just disastrous decisions made uh, by Rumsfeld's uh, authority, mm-hmm. uh, by the guy who had plenipotentiary power on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Colin Powell was sitting over in the State Department just trying to, just going, you know, pulling his hair out because he tried to do uh, post planning for the post-combat phase and was told by Rumsfeld to forget about it. Uh, and so, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a, a story that uh, I called at the time self-congratulatory ignorance mm-hmm. because it was uh, full of arrogance and, uh, and stupidity at the same time. Hmm. But I don't think you can blame the uh, CENTCOM. You know? I think you've got to look at uh, the Pentagon and, and Washington more generally to, uh, if you want to track down the villains of that piece.
1: Have you, have you seen a big change in the last 40 years with our reliance upon special forces? Yes. And how would you describe it, and how do you see the future?
0: Well, I describe it as a good move. <laughs>
1: yeah, most people do. I love
0: these guys. Yeah. I mean, uh, they are a warrior elite. The Special Force, the Snake Eaters. Not just uh, Delta Force, but all of them. And the uh, SEALs, and not just SEAL Team 6, but all of them. And, uh, you know, the, the Rangers. These are my kind of guys. And they're the tip of the spear. And they've been turned to uh, because they're the only answer we've been able to figure out to asymmetrical warfare against, uh, you know, guys that are not in uniform, don't have anything to lose, don't own any property, don't really care about their own life. I mean, these suicide bombers talk about having nothing to lose. They're willing to give up their life and drive a pickup truck, you know, up to mm-hmm. the century post. So the, so regular armed forces are not much good against these guys. But the stuff we're doing that you would call special forces, including drone RPVs and, and Air Force special forces, the weapons and t- special tactics teams, that, that are operating in support of Special Operations Command. These these are good guys. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think uh, Special Operations uh, Command now is too big uh, because they're better if they're smaller, kind of like the Marines. You know, they were better when they were 100,000 than they were with 180 mm-hmm. uh, because they get to be too heavy-footed and bureaucratic. So keep them small, keep them tough, and uh, I, I think that kind of answer is the best one we've come up with so far to dealing with uh, forces whose, whose uh, operations are hard for us to understand when we were in our kind of bureaucratic, you know, uh, behind-the-desk uh, mode. So count me as a uh, you know big fan of of the Special Operations Force at this point.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much, General McPeak, for the time you've given us today. It's been extremely revealing. I know our fans are going to enjoy it very much. And catch your books, uh, Hanger Flying okay. below Hanger okay. Flying below the Zone and Rolls and Missions.
0: And John, just let me say, I do have a website. Okay, GeneralMcPeak.com. GeneralMcPeak, all one word.com. And there you can get an autographed copy, you know, if you want. And it won't cost you any more than what they're doing at Amazon. So go on over to my website, and and you'll see the whole uh, display there.
1: Okay, I want to thank you for your service, for an absolutely excellent career, for wonderful books, for all this good advice, and for uh, how you've contributed with the Ken Burns Vietnam, the Vietnam War documentary. Is that playing now?
0: Yes, it is. Well, it okay. was uh, played in September on uh, public uh, television. Right. Okay. And it's and it's uh, it can it's come back and so you can find it. On, also, it's on sale. You know, you can go buy the, the CDs. Okay. Uh, they're, uh, very good. Uh, very yeah.
1: good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, oh, okay, John. Nice it's, talk. Okay. Good. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a new app. It's up now at the Apple App Store. It combines all our shows. It's free, and it's called 1001 Stories Network. That's 1001 Stories Network. And we'll have that Apple iOS app link in the show notes for you today, along with our new premium member subscription offer. Premium members will have access to all of our inventory at 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road. And it'll be totally ad-free with access to special features and bonus episodes. Many established podcast shows are offering a premium membership now with rising hosting fees and lots of other expenses. Having a successful podcast or a podcast network takes a lot and subscribers help out in a big way. And they get a lot in return. It's $2.99 a month less than a cup of flavored coffee in most places, so help us out. You'll be seeing 1001 Stories Network app at Android and Amazon App Store this week. By the way, Alexa users, you can now ask Alexa to play 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and you'll get the latest episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again soon.